you turn in your Bibles again to Philippians 3. If you remember last week, we looked at verses 8 through 11 of Philippians 3. So you might remember that. What you probably don't remember uh, is the time in May before that when I preached last in Philippians and we looked at verses 3 through 7. When we looked at verses 3 through 7, we looked at the idea of how to uh, apply those verses to our lives in such a way that we are embracing a true gospel reality in order that false teaching will have no effect on us, just as Paul warns us to look out for it in, in verse 2 of Philippians 3. And last week, when we, when we looked at the verses, verses 8 through 11, we spent time talking about why all believers need to be those who take the same posture as Paul and count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And today... I want to do something just a bit different. After doing separate sermons on both of those passages, I want to look at them together and and think through them as Paul's personal testimony. As kind of Paul's personal testimony, because it's a unique look into Paul that we don't get in other places. When we think of Paul's conversion, we usually jump right to the story of his conversion on the Damascus Road from Acts chapter 9. That section of Scripture does indeed give us a picture of the occasion of Paul's conversion. But what we see in Philippians 3, really verses 4 through 11, is Paul explaining the the theological truth of the saving power of the gospel. Something that Paul has richly taught throughout his other epistles, but here he is applying that really rich soteriology to his own personal experience. It's like, it's maybe like the other half of what we would include in someone's baptism testimony. So when we have people come up here and they get baptized and they read their personal testimonies, they, have, they include both parts in that. They have that part that we see in Acts 9 where someone explains the physical circumstances regarding their salvation, where they were, and what they were doing, who spoke to them, what they did next. But then there is the other part, the part that refers to what actually is it is that is changing inside of you. What is the theological reality that that was taking place in your life, in your conversion? What's really cool as as we're in here, when we're listening to these testimonies before baptisms, is that we hear all kinds of differences in lives and circumstances and situations and families and in geographical surroundings and different occupations various sinful lifestyles and living situations that people are saved out of. But no matter how much variety we hear in those stories, each one of them comes back to the same gospel. And it's the same gospel realities that we see at work in each of them. No matter what the situation is that they're in, it's the miracle of salvation that has united us together under Christ and made us and made us into Grace Church. I do know that some of you are actual family with one another, so there, there is that way in which you might know those people otherwise, but it is because of God's saving work in each of our individual lives that has caused us to not just know one another and recognize one another, but to have a deep family love towards one another. It is because God has done 
in each one of us the exact thing that we see in Philippians 3, that we see him doing in Paul in this section of Scripture. That It's because of that that we all know, that all of you knew this morning without a shadow of a doubt that the best place for you to be every single Sunday morning is right here with this church. It's because of what God has done in you. It is a miracle of God that this diverse group of people with every imaginable occupation and family background situation have been changed by God from the inside out so that we are all here together worshiping God and glorying in the same gospel message that saved each of us. So since it is available to us here in this text, this morning we are going to look at Paul's testimony. And we're going to use it to think a little more deeply on the miracle of salvation that binds us all together. The same inner realities that transform the life of Paul are the exact same ones that are represented in every baptismal testimony that we hear up here and that are representative of each of our lives. So you can see that as we look together, read together in Philippians 3. Now let's start in verse 3 and read through verse 11. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this passage. Don't think of it so much as me re-preaching the last two sermons because so many of you missed them, and I want to make sure you heard them. That's, that's not what we're doing, and it's not re-preaching, re-preaching because there is some different meaning. This is taking that same passage, and what we're doing is we're kind of turning it at a different angle, because not because there's different meaning, but because there's more meaning. We mentioned last week how this is such, such a uniquely personal theological teaching from Paul, and as such, it is this unique opportunity to think through some of these amazing truths that Paul expands on in so many of his letters, but now to see them personally applied to him. So what we're going to take a deeper look at is three aspects of our common salvation, our common salvation, three key uh, soteriological realities that are true of all who are truly Christians. But we're going to look at them in the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And there are words that you probably will recognize, and I'm going to use them as our three points in our outline today. Number one, conversion. Number two, sanctification. Number three, glorification. I actually like the word for number one. I like the word new birth better, um, but conversion ends in shun. 
which they all do. But so you can you can do whatever whatever you like better. The, these are all words that you would find represented in what we would call what, what we generally see and talk about is the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. This is the term that we use to describe everything that takes place in salvation and kind of the logical order that it takes place in. Um, and, and that order is broken up between what happens in eternity past and what actually occurs in space and time as we understand it. And, what, and then also what happens in eternity future. So, so first, what we're not going to spend much time on today is what happens in eternity past. Before the creation of the world, God predestined all who would be saved with an unconditional election. We saw that, we just read it in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, for the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And although it's clearly biblical, as we just read and through and it's biblical through and through. Many people have a problem with the concepts of predestination and unconditional election. And the reason I'm bringing them up is because that problem usually boils down to the fact that it makes it seem as though man has no say in his salvation. But if you have that issue, you should have that issue with more than just those terms. Because the parts of salvation that we're going to spend time on today are clearly presented as being all of God also. And it's going to, that's going to become plainly obvious as we go through this text, which again is going to focus more on these other aspects of the order of salvation, that which unfolds in space and time as we experience it, and eternity future. First, we have the eternity past stuff. Uh, which, which Paul doesn't talk about here, but talks about in plenty other places. Second, we have the aspects of salvation that, that we see unfold in time and in space. So, so our conversion. This is the point uh, where we would refer to being born again. When we talk about these things, again, a lot of these words are interchanged interchangeable being born again, conversion. Uh, some people, those are both in reference to regeneration. But for our purpose, we're just gonna, I'm just going to lump them all into this one category of conversion, this, this thing that happens, the, the, the new birth where the effectual call of God takes place in your life, regeneration takes place in your life, the gift of faith and repentance takes place in your life, justification takes place, and, and adoption all of these things happen almost simultaneously. Again, so there's a logical order to how each of those aspects has to unfold, but there's not, it's not really a temporal order as we would experience it. Because again, each of those things, effectual calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, all of that happens simultaneously as we experience it. We experience it instantly, simultaneously, but there is a logical progression that is necessary to understand. Then from the moment of our new birth until the day of our death, we experience salvation every day in our ongoing sanctification. In our ongoing sanctification, in our ongoing preservation, God continues to make us more and more like Jesus and keeps us in Him. That is always going on in us. We experience that for the rest of our lives, if we're truly in Christ. Then our final state after death, after the return of Christ, 
We call that glorification, where, where we are free forever from sin and its power and its presence, free from it forever, given a glorified body in which we will enjoy the presence of God for all of eternity. This is what is true. These things are true of every Christian. If you are truly a Christian today, it is because God predestined you for salvation before the creation of the world with an an unconditional election. Whether you believe that that's what happened or not, that's what happened. And at some point in time, He called you to the salvation that He appointed you to, and in that moment, in that moment, you were regenerated, justified, adopted, and you respond with faith and repentance. A faith and repentance that were impossible for you to do just seconds before your regeneration. And you are now currently being sanctified, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, and you are destined for a certain glorification. It is these concepts that are present in, in, in varying degrees in what Paul describes has happened to him. And we see, that, we see also that it is these concepts, and when you're talking about sanctification and glorification, that he longs for. These are the very things he is describing here from more of a first-person point of view than, than we usually see in Paul. So before we go any farther, though, I want to remind ourselves of the day of Paul's conversion by reading Luke's account of it from a historical perspective in Acts 9. So so flip over to Acts 9. Flip over to Acts 9. Let's get the context surrounding the miracle that Paul is describing in our passage today. Acts 9, we'll read verses 1 through 19. Uh, well, might as well read verse 20 because I'm going to refer to it too. Verses 1 through 20. Acts 9, 1 through 20. But Saul, so you remember he, Paul is Saul still here. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that, that's the early term for Christianity, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. So what we see here in Acts 9 is a historical account of the conversion of Saul, but we don't see exactly what's going on inside of him, exactly where and when the conversion happens, where it takes place, but we see the effects right away in verse 20. He immediately is proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. So in this passage, we get the sense of the aspects of salvation that took place in eternity past. We do see that a little bit as we hear that Paul or Saul is a chosen instrument of God to carry Christ's name to the Gentiles. You get the clear picture that God just decided to save Paul for his own purposes. This had nothing to do with Paul wanted, with, with what Paul wanted to do. It wasn't Paul's intention. The only thing that explains this change in Paul's actions from hatred for those who follow Jesus to an obedience is regeneration. Is regeneration. And that's, and that's what we're going to see. That's what we're going to talk about in our first point. So the first point, conversion slash new birth. You could write all of those things, slash effectual calling, slash regeneration, slash faith. And you could put all those in there if you want, but let's just call it conversion for now. It's what we see the evidence of if you look back at verses 4 through 9. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he goes through all of those reasons. And then he says, but whatever gain I had in those things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Again, when some people say conversion, they're referring only to, to faith or repentance or regeneration. But again, I want, to, I want to talk about all of those things right now and how we see them in Paul. All of those things that happen simultaneously, and we're going to think through them a little bit here, but the key parts of conversion that we're going to look at and talk about and think about are regeneration, justification, and faith. And so, so we see the internal effectual call and regeneration taking place in Paul, sometime there on that Damascus Road experience in Acts 9. Something happens there. The, the hard heart of the Apostle Paul is transformed, and he is able now to believe the gospel message that he had no doubt heard many times before and would no doubt hear again from Ananias. We don't know exactly where this happened. It might have happened in the home of Ananias, where that, that's where we're told that that he is going to receive the Holy Spirit. 
But we, we see the evidence immediately again in Acts 9.20, in his actions. We hear, uh, we hear what we can see and we can tell what is actually taking place. The stuff that we just looked at in Philippians 3 is taking place in Paul's life. I mean, we see those things that he lists in verses 4 through 6. All of those things that he's proud of, that he's putting his trust in. And then look, flip back to Acts 9, 1 and 2. You don't have to, just, I'll just read it for you. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is, in, in, in the first two verses of Acts 9, the heart of Paul as he goes out on the road to Damascus. He is fully trusting in his own devotion to God. What he sees as his own devotion to God, we see that the, those things that he's so proud of in verses 4 through 6 of Philippians 3 on display in his zeal to persecute the church his zeal to arrest them, men and women. That's what is going on here. This is, so this is what regeneration does. This is what it looks like. It's a total change from one nature to another, and it is totally of God. Paul does nothing to change himself. He is not headed out on his way to Damascus contemplating whether or not what he's doing is right. It's not that he, he, he's thinking through Stephen's words from earlier to, to where he's begun, you know, starting to question what it is he's living for. He is set in his ways. He is trusting in all of the, in that list from four through six. There, there's no inner turmoil in him. And then, boom, we see the effectual call of God. He knocks Paul to the ground and he saves him. He said, you're done living for yourself and now you're living for me. That's what's happening now. The total transformation. He went from the beginning of Acts 9, he went from standing in approval as, as Stephen is murdered in front of him a couple chapters earlier, and, and at the beginning of Acts 9, he's breathing out, breathing out threats of murder. Breathing out. That's an indication that this is just coming out of him naturally. Threats of murder against Christians. His intention, as Acts 9 begins, is to go to the synagogues with letters from the high priest and arrest all the Christians. But what he's doing in the synagogues just a few days later is proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. This is God's work in Paul. He has completely changed him. Because God has completely changed him, what we see in our passage in Philippians 3 is a man who now counts all of those things that he was so proud of at the beginning of Acts 9, all of those things that he was so proud of, he now counts them all as loss for the sake of Christ. The very first act of the regenerate heart is faith and repentance. When your heart is, is softened, softened to the, to the truth of the gospel. Your eyes are opened and you immediately recognize your sin for what it is. You see, you understand that any effort of your own to ever make up for it is utter foolishness. 
this is the heart of Paul that he's expressing as you move from verses 4 through 6 into verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. As we begin to, to talk about and think through what true saving faith is in this passage, it's directly connected to that thinking. Here we see that this is what true faith in Christ is. It's not the mere belief, not the mere belief that Jesus died and rose again and that he loves you. That, that's not what saving faith looks like. That's not the character of saving faith. It is the belief that your sin is so utterly reprehensible and, and offensive before a good and holy God that it is deserving of an eternal punishment in hell. That there is absolutely nothing that you could ever do to actually earn God's favor, to earn God's acceptance. That's not in you somewhere. There's nothing that you could ever do to make up for your sin. Your eyes are opened to the truth, to the true reality of sin. We're suddenly blowing it off by saying things like, well, everybody makes mistakes, brings you no more comfort because you understand your sin with respect to a holy God. And on top of all of that, when you're regenerated, your, your eyes bring you face to face with, with that reality that Paul has just spoken of in verses 4-7, through seven, that not only does everything that you've ever done to try and earn God's favor, everything you've ever done to try and prove your worth to Him, not only does that not save you, but it actually further condemns you. That's what Paul is saying in verse 7. Those things that I thought were working for me in my defense before God, those were actually evidence for the prosecution. And one of the a good example, good illustration of this is one of the shortest hearings ever on Judge Judy, a 26 second long hearing. There was a woman who was accusing a man of stealing her wallet. Judge Judy asked the woman what was in the wallet, and the woman said, $50, all of my IDs, some gift cards, my earpiece, and a calculator. The defendant, who was claiming that he had not stole the wallet, responded with this for his defense, interrupted to say this. There was no earpiece in there, ma'am. What he thought was a help for his case was actually condemnation, was a loss. And we, we rightly laugh at something like that, but the reality is that all of those who stand before God one day and try and offer Him something of their own power will be revealed to be even stupider than that man as they discover that that, that which they thought was their defense actually only serves to condemn them farther. The miracle of faith, the miracle of saving faith is not believing that God died for me because He loves me. He loves me so much and I'm worth it. That type of faith in God that is so prevalent in today's evangelicalism has no basis in what Paul is saying here. Just think about it. What, if that's you, if that's you and that, that's where your faith is, Christ died for me because I'm worth it, because he loves me, I'm worth it. What, what you're actually having faith in in that situation is you're having faith in your own importance. 
You're trusting that God will believe the same thing about you that you feel like you need to be believing about you. And this is why even though regeneration and faith happen simultaneously in our own experience, regeneration logically must precede faith. Because true faith is the faith that trusts in Christ for something that you cannot provide to God from yourself. Any other faith that is not a faith that is, that is brought about, that comes out of regeneration, all other faith cannot be a faith that leads to justification simply because it does not understand the need, the true need for justification. Regeneration has to open our eyes to the hopeless to, to, our, to our hopeless state and the fact that in reality, we look no different than that defendant who's just sitting there incriminating himself, thinking that, that he's making some brilliant point that proves his innocence while only condemning himself. Regeneration must open our eyes to our helplessness, to our hopelessness, If it does not, then our faith is not the type of faith that we're talking about here because it cannot possibly be placed in what it needs to be in order to be a faith that leads to justification. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse 9. It can't be the right kind of faith. He says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul understands that he does, in fact, need righteousness, but that it is not a righteousness that he can attain through his own effort to obey the law, but rather the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ and is, what what does it say? Is from God. That this is the glorious truth of imputation. Again, it's not merely that Paul is moving from one way to please God to another. I really want to push this contrast in your mind because this is how faith is talked about. The gospel message is not that fulfilling works of the law can't impress God. Simply believing in Jesus is what you need to impress God. That is not the gospel It seems like so many Christians today see the message of the gospel as good news because of this, because it saves us from having to fulfill the extremely difficult task of obeying the law, and it gives us a much easier task that we can achieve on our own, which is putting faith in Christ. That that is not saving faith. You see that in verses 3 through 9, you can see for Paul in this passage that regeneration Regeneration has actually changed the goal of his life. Not from trying to prove worth to God. He's not trying to prove worth to God anymore. He's not trying to prove his acceptance to God anymore. It's changed the goal of his life, and not just from trying to prove my worth to God through the obedience to law, to now proving my worth to God through the easier task of having faith. That's not what has happened in regeneration. No, the goal of his life has completely shifted from earning God's favor to gaining Christ. To gaining Christ and being found in him. My goal is no longer earning God's favor. My goal is no longer doing something that makes me acceptable to God. Whether that be by my works or whether that be by me expressing faith. My goal now is gaining 
Christ and being found in Him. And the reason why this is necessary is not because us trying to gain Christ and be found in Him is what we can finally do now to earn our salvation. Again, he's not saying that. He's not saying, okay, what I have to do now is try and gain Christ and be found in Him. It's far from that. It's because he recognizes through regenerate eyes, Jesus Christ is the only person who has lived in a way that is acceptable to God. He is the only one who has lived a life that God finds to be faithful. And therefore, He is our only hope. Our only hope is to get to God is through connection to Christ, the one who has lived a life that is acceptable before God. God's standard of holiness is far beyond anything that we could ever hope to attain. Paul understands that all of his law-keeping, all of his zeal means absolutely nothing when God is so holy that just one sinful thought justly condemns him to an eternal hell. And it's because that one sinful thought was against the infinite and perfect Creator God of the universe. Therefore, anything that he does to try and earn salvation when his sin is that offensive to a holy God can do nothing but further offend that God. However, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we never could, never sinning even once, not even in thought. And he then went to the cross and he suffered and he died as the only person in human history to die as a truly innocent man. And in that death, He took on Himself the just punishment that each of us deserved. And all who have now been regenerated by the Spirit of God to understand their own depravity, their own hopelessness, to ever stand blameless before God in and of themselves, and then respond to that by repenting of their sins because they see them for what they truly are and putting their trust in the fact that Christ took the penalty for our sins upon Himself on the cross And now those people have not only the justification that comes as a result of our sins being justly paid for by Christ, the only one who could stand in our place, but now have also been given the righteous life of Christ, a righteous life credited to our account. Our only hope Our only hope is for the penalty for our sins to be imputed to Christ on the cross and for His righteous life to be imputed to us. And the vehicle that attaches us to the justification before God that comes through the imputation of Christ's death and life is faith, is true faith. God, through the Holy Spirit, regenerates us to see our desperate need for salvation, opens our eyes to the fact that everything we could offer up for this can only appear in the loss column of that metaphorical accounting ledger that Paul is providing for us here. And all this to say that this is why the Reformed understanding of the order of salvation is so important. Regeneration must take place for faith to exist, for faith to be rightly placed. It is the only way that Paul's accounting metaphor makes mathematical sense. If, as is most commonly believed and practiced, faith precedes regeneration, faith is what motivates God to give us regeneration, then faith becomes nothing more than a 
self-propelled work. A work that has arisen out of a heart that still has not been realigned to truly see Christ as of surpassing worth. If faith is a human work that brings about regeneration, then it has taken on the nature of something that you have produced. It is your own gain, and therefore it belongs also in that lost column in verse 7. If you believe that faith brings about regeneration, and it is also true that it is only the person who, who has been regenerated who can truly see their sin for what it is, and Christ for who He truly is, then that faith has an incomplete understanding of Christ and His work. Can that faith really bring about salvation? Of course it cannot. So not only that, but this truth that God brings about regeneration and that faith and repentance is the immediate response also gives us confidence in our evangelism, does it not? Because we know that it is God who transforms the sinner's heart to receive the gospel, that God must do that, then we know that it is not our duty to convince people of our faith. We don't have to convince them of the truth. We can know and be confident in the fact that our responsibility is to preach the gospel. Because no one is regenerated apart from believing the gospel that they have heard at some point. Romans 10.14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? These are Paul's own words in Romans 10. So no one is saved who has not had the gospel preached to them at some point. So this should be an encouraging thing for us to think about as we think about Paul. Because who did we see preach the gospel to Paul in Acts 9? No one that we see. Surely he spoke of it with Ananias. We don't actually hear it. And the truth is that if Paul was saved during that time, it was because of the truth that he just said in Romans 10, because God regenerated his heart and he responded with faith and repentance to a gospel that he had heard preached to him by someone else on some occasion. Paul responded with the faith and repentance that he understood was to be his response based on the gospel that he had heard preached to him. There were probably many times from Stephen and maybe others that Paul is persecuting if he's been persecuting real Christians, he's been hearing the gospel. They're sharing the gospel with Paul, either directly or indirectly. So Paul knows the gospel, the gospel message as he heads out to Damascus. And in that moment, God steps in, regenerates Paul's heart, opens Paul's eyes to see the truth of those words that he's heard so many times before. So who knows in those, those three days? That, that Paul, that these things are happening with Paul. Who knows whose faithful gospel proclamation was running through Paul's mind when the Holy Spirit actually regenerated him and he was able to respond with the repentance of sin and faith in the life and death of Christ that he had been told to. Did that person or those people whose faithful proclamation of the gospel of God, that God used in the salvation of the Apostle Paul, do they ever know the fruit of their faithful preaching? that a little part of what they had said, that God had used that 
to save Paul? That's our hope too, right? We share the gospel faithfully whenever we can. We count it a great joy and privilege whenever we are able to, and then we leave the rest to God. Don't you need that, children's ministry workers? VBS volunteers? Knowing that regeneration is all the work of God, He brings it about. My job is to faithfully proclaim the gospel so that maybe that kid who, as we're sharing the gospel in class back there, and they're staring off at the lights, or something else, or thinking about what they're doing when they get home, or wondering about breakfast, or thinking if they can ask to go to the bathroom for the fourth time. They're hearing it over and over and over and over again. And one day, maybe God's going to regenerate them, and and that's going to be part of it. That gospel message that's been proclaimed to them. I know that I was saved, that God truly regenerated me, sometime there in my last year of high school. And I had heard the gospel proclaimed to me faithfully hundreds and thousands of times by many of even the people in this room. It's in that moment where all of this truth that's always been there and your eyes are open to hear it. And I was so thankful for all of the people who were faithful in sharing the gospel with me, even though looking at me in those moments you would be tempted to think this is a waste. This is a waste. Bruce was sharing the gospel with me in Awana with us and we were praying and I, was, I had a paper clip and I was up against the wall and I stuck it into an electric socket <laughs> and shocked myself while Bruce is being... What, what's going through the mind of Bruce Shannon during this... T- that kid... This is a point. It's got to be a work of God. This is such an encouragement for us that this is what regeneration looks like. And this is what God uses the faithful proclamation of his gospel. Faithful proclamation of his gospel. And the response doesn't depend on us. That's our hope. We share the gospel faithfully when we can and we trust God for the results because saving faith can only take place in the one whose eyes have been opened to the surpassing worth of Christ and they see their desperate need to be found in Him, place no confidence any longer in themselves. So we can look at this passage and we can see the unbelievable saving power of God that would transform someone who believes that they can earn acceptance by God through their own actions into into one who sees those same actions as nothing but loss. And then that demonstrates their desperate need to, to gain Christ and be found in Him. So that is the new birth aspect of Paul's conversion. And now in verse 10, we get into that next point as we look to Paul's salvation, and that's sanctification. It says, Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. When we read that Paul's desire is to know Him and the power of His resurrection, and then we read in the next verse, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What generally happens is we, our mind immediately goes to think that Paul is speaking about what is awaiting him in the future. 
as he often does. And he's already actually done in this letter a few times. But you can see in verse 10, by the present tense terminology that he uses, that Paul is talking about power that he expects from God, power from God that he expects to experience in this life. This is what we briefly talked about last week. Paul's understanding of sanctification is that he may know Christ. And by this he means both the power of his resurrection and the sharing in his sufferings. So notice that Paul sees his new, his new birth as not just something that has an effect on his eternal destiny, but something that will shape how he lives in this life. Notice that Paul understands that the gain of Christ is not merely the removal of his confidence for salvation from himself and then on to Christ. It's not merely that, but also gaining the intimate relationship with Christ that is represented in the word know, that I may know him. And remember last week we talked about how the word represented, that word know represents a, a close, intimate communion with Christ. And Paul is saying that this is a this is a present tense knowing of Christ during this life. So this is how he sees himself growing into Christ's likeness is by knowing him. And this and this verse, verse 10, gives two ways in which this happens. So it's most likely here that Paul meant this verse to not sound so much like he's giving three objects that are related to the word know. He's not saying that I may know him and that I may know also the power of his resurrection and this other different thing, the sharing of his sufferings. That's, that's not what he's saying. It means something more along the lines of that I may know him even the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering. So Paul isn't leaving us with kind of this ambiguous statement of knowing him and then not defining what it means. He's actually defining what it means in this case. So to know Christ specifically is to know the power of his resurrection. A close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ should see us knowing the power of his resurrection. Paul says in other places that the power of God that raised Christ from the dead is also at work in the life of every believer in their daily lives. We just read that, a little bit of that in Ephesians 1. If you look at 16 through 20 later, you can write it down. I'll, I'll, I'll read it now. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? He wants us to know and understand the hope and the riches of his glorious inheritance and the immeasurable power toward us who believe and it's that same power, Paul says in Ephesians 1, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that God uses in us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Again, if we are talking about the power that raised Jesus from the dead, even though 
we are called to obedience in the area of sanctification. So sanctification does involve us being obedient. But when we're talking about the power to be sanctified, being the power that raised Jesus from the dead, then we also need to recognize even sanctification is all of God. And that it is the power from God that is responsible for changing us. In our sanctification, we also, just as in our conversion, every aspect of our conversion, we have no reason to boast. Every aspect of our salvation puts the glory of God on display, not ourselves. And whether or not we truly know Christ and the power of His resurrection is most on display, according to Paul in this passage, when we share in His sufferings. Paul sees knowing Christ through the power of His resurrection and through the sharing of His sufferings as experiences that are consistent with the Christian life. Both of those things consistent with the Christian life. Knowing the power of the resurrection of Christ in this life to really experience and the experience of suffering are two things that are in the rest of Christianity in our country, they are utterly inconsistent with each other. And in the understanding of the theology of so many people, they have no category for these things existing together. Even many of us in here who might not necessarily say that, still find ourselves sometimes, don't we, acting against what we claim to believe to be true in our daily Christian practice. And so much of what passes for Christianity, I mean, if they even have a category for living in the power of the resurrection of Christ, they would equate it with minimizing suffering or avoiding suffering. They see all suffering as a sign that something is off. That in fact, there is no way that what they are going through could possibly be seen as living in the power of the resurrection of Christ if they are suffering. The popular doctrine right now is that I need the power of Christ, the power that raised Jesus from the dead in my life to deliver me from suffering. You see, all suffering is a sign that, that something's gone wrong. And again, if we're honest, we can fall into this type of thinking easily. When things are going well, it is far more easy to feel like I'm closer to Christ. It is much easier to believe that I'm closer to Christ when my life is in order. When I'm able to read my Bible and pray for encouragement rather than for strength. But Paul understands the necessity of suffering in his life if sanctification is really going to take place. He wants to know Christ. He wants to be conformed to Christ's likeness. And therefore, he wants the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. If we understand our salvation like Paul understood his, then we will also have the desire to share in the suffering of Christ, to fellowship with Him in it. Unless we think that Paul is... I'm just talking about having a Christ-like attitude when I get blisters from my sandals like Jesus maybe got. Paul says, becoming like him in his death. And that word that he uses there for becoming like him was used last in Philippians in that great passage on the incarnation. In Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. Quickly, look at 2, 5-8. through 8. Look what he says. 
Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on our cross. Those words there that are translated as form, most of them, that's the Greek word morphe. That's that's the iteration of this word that's translated as becoming like him in our passage today. We're reminded here that just as Christ In Philippians 2, that just as Christ came and took the form of a servant, even to the point of death, the shameful death on a cross, so Paul wants to conform himself to Christ in his death. Paul is unable, and if you remember way back when we studied that passage, he's unable to humble himself as much as Christ was able to. Remember, Christ comes from up here all the way to humbling himself to death on a cross, way up here to where we can't even see it, and we're down here already. We don't have far to go to humble ourselves, to follow Him. He is is unable to humble Himself in that way, but He does desire to become like Him, at least in His death. To be able to face all suffering, even to the point of death, the way that Jesus was able to, and to be able to do it in the way that Christ was, with total trust in the perfect plan of God and the willingness to play His part with joy, bringing glory to God no matter what that might be, no matter what that might look like, sharing in the suffering of Christ is one of the primary ways that we are able to become more Christ-like. And becoming like Christ is the goal of our salvation. That's the goal of our salvation. That's the goal of everything we've been talking about. And God uses suffering in our lives to bring us more towards that goal, even now as we live in this life. And it is in this way that we will most see the demonstration of the resurrection power of God on display in our lives. Because it is in these situations where it becomes most evident that you consider everything else that might get in the way of knowing Christ, you consider that a loss. It is in suffering where Christ is shown to be truly of surpassing worth in your own life. So we don't desire suffering in our life for some weird pain-loving reason. We don't enjoy suffering any more than anyone else. But we long to know Christ. And we long to be conformed to Him so much that if sharing in His sufferings is the way that this will take place the most in our lives, then is part of our desire to, to know Him and experience God's power in our lives, we desire to have fellowship in His suffering so that we might become like him even as he was in his death. Finally, final point, the shortest point, don't worry, glorification. This is the final part of our salvation, the wonderful promise that in the end we will attain the resurrection of the dead. The dying and dead bodies that have been given to every true believer will be made to be imperishable and will be totally free from the curse of sin. We are told that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits pointing to the resurrection of all of our bodies into glorified bodies just as He has. Look in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is not doubting that this will happen. 
Even though some have taken it to mean that, he, he is, what, he, what Paul is doing, he's not, he's not suddenly like, I hope all of God's promises really do come through. He's making a statement that is consistent with everything that has just been said in his testimony up to this point. He is recognizing this truth as something that is miraculous. By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the goal. That by any means possible, it speaks to the, the miracle of, of who Paul has just re- revealed himself to be. He is indicating that there should be shock. There should be utter shock that someone like him should actually attain to the resurrection from the dead. How is that possible? This is what is, this is, what is so amazing about a true understanding of salvation. The old Paul... Uh, Acts 9, 1 and 2, Paul, that Paul would not have been surprised at all that God would grant him eternal life. Based on that list from Philippians 3, 4 through 6, that's what he expects. Of course, God's going to give me eternal life. But the regenerate Paul, who now understands just how depraved he truly is and that everything that he thought was making deposits into the account of a righteousness that is acceptable to God was actually just more credits, this Paul is amazed that there is somehow some sort of, in, some sort of any means by which he, even he, could attain the resurrection of the dead. He is blown away by that. And this should be the case for all who claim to have been saved by God in this way. The more we study Scripture, the more we know Christ, the more it will, yes, it will give us more confidence in our salvation based on a better understanding of the character of God. But at the same time, it should also add to our bewilderment that someone like me, someone like you, would actually be saved. In fact, I I think that that is one of the greatest attacks that Satan uses to make Christians ineffective, to tempt us to become bored with the fact that God has chosen to save us. And bring us into eternity with Him. When those who are by nature rebellious sinners against God succumb to the death that we deserve, that instead of punishing us forever in hell and going good riddance, God brings us back to life and to eternity with Him. We should never get used to this truth and treat it as commonplace. The very thing that that you would do anything to attain, wouldn't you? If it was up to you, anything to attain, the resurrection from the dead, that death wouldn't be the end. The very thing that you would do anything to attain, the one thing that should seem absolutely impossible to us, is what God has done for you. This is why Paul is so eager to share in Christ's suffering, because it is when he sees himself becoming like Jesus in his death, he sees the reality of the full promise of salvation on display in his life. The same God who has promised to bring me into glory with him, the the wretched man that I am, who has no business having any part of God, But as I share in his suffering and as I respond in a way that would be impossible were it not for the fact that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now works in me, that same power that will one day be on display when he brings me up from the grave is visible in me now as I endure suffering for his sake. 
and look like Him in His death. This is truly the best way that we can see and be assured of our salvation in this life. That's why Paul longs to see it. He is continually amazed that God would save him. And then as he is granted the opportunity to share in Christ's suffering and respond not by rebelling against Christ, which would seem like that would be the evident thing to do, but by, instead of rebelling, becoming more like him. He's able to look at himself and say, as he, as he watches himself suffer and reflects Christ, he's able to look at himself and say, wow, this is really happening to me. God is really saving me. And I can see it in my response to suffering. And this connection is made all throughout Scripture. And I won't make you turn there, but write these down and listen. Matthew 10, 21 through 22, Jesus says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. From Hebrews 3, or verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you evil, un, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, let's do 8 through 10, and the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We long to see the sanctifying power of God in our lives because we know that enduring suffering and persecution for his sake is the greatest evidence that something that should only continue to become more and more unbelievable to us, that we will attain the resurrection of the dead, is truly going to happen in us. Enduring to the end, even as those closest people to you hate you and despise you for his sake, holding on to your confidence to the end, being faithful through tribulation, even unto death. Those are not God's requirements of you in order to receive the crown of life in the end. This is just the demonstration that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave is already at work in you, that the very same miraculous work of salvation that we see at work in Paul in this testimony is at work in you as well. And it will inevitably lead to the unbelievable final destination of being raised from the dead and living with Christ for eternity. So let us embrace every opportunity, whether it be living faithfully every day with the understanding of the surpassing worth of Christ on display in our everyday life, or those times where we are given the gift to share in his suffering those times that make it even more obvious that we belong to him. No matter what, embracing every opportunity to think deeply about and rejoice in 
the unbelievable way in which God has saved brothers and sisters, even us. Even us. Father, thank you so much for what we see in the life of Paul. The theology on display that we can talk about in, a, in, in classrooms and seminary classrooms and, and things like that. And, but to be able to see it and think about it in the way it is personally changing and affecting us. And God, I pray that we would, in, the, in this time, as, as we see suffering becoming a little more and more imminent, that we would have Paul's attitude towards it. We would glory in the opportunity to see on display the resurrection power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. See it on display in our lives right now in this life, demonstrating that the future promises that you have made to us concerning our glorification are true and certain. That we would glory in those opportunities and giving all glory to you and your amazing, unbelievable work of salvation in each of our lives. We are so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.